Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and for those of you who may have taken a summer hiatus from the program, it's good to have you back with us. We're going to begin tonight by discussing a problem that plagues millions of Americans, medical debt. An organization that has found a way to help so many people out of this crippling circumstance is RIP Medical Debt, and I will be joined by their co-founder, Craig Antico. Half of all debt is medical. 58% of all the bad marks on a credit report are medical debt. Mm. So we know medical debt, and it's one of the hardest, hardest types of accounts to collect. And then you will hear from Dr. Young Lee, the president and CEO of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. Damon Runyon and Walter Winchell, again, were very, very good friends. And when... Walter Winchell found out the news about his very good friend, Damon Runyon, passing away of cancer. He got on the radio and he put out a call to the men and women of America to give their spare change to support cancer research. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, September 8th. Five of America's wealthiest foundations have joined forces to do more to help grantees pay rent, decent wages, technology and other overhead. The heads of Ford, Hewlett, MacArthur, Open Society, and Packer Foundations said they learned that many of the organizations they supported face major deficits because of the stingy policies that provide just a sliver of the money they need to operate and run projects. A consortium of foundations funding initiatives to study the role Facebook plays in elections and democracy is recommending winding down the project because the social media giant has not provided the necessary data to researchers as promised, this according to the Social Science Research Council. A new policy allows people to use electric bicycles on national parks' designated bike paths. Scores of people are leaving the New York City area behind every day. New York leads all U.S. metro areas as the largest net loser with 277 people moving out daily, more than double the exodus of 132 just one year ago. An international team of scientists have shown that the blood pressure-lowering effect of exercise is significantly reduced when people rinse their mouths with mouthwash rather than water, showing the importance of oral bacteria in cardiovascular health. And finally, women are safer drivers on average than men, yet they are 17% more likely to be killed in a crash because cars have been designed around the bodies of male crash test dummies. U.S. safety regulators did not start using female crash test dummies until 2011. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back right after this. Well, my husband is a retired sergeant from the Air Force. Well, he was in the Army for 14 years and an MP. 23 million veterans. They're heroes who need our help. Well, I'm here because my daughter has had her third surgery for cancer. We've had some difficulties, so we're here quite some time. We're going on a three weeks. When our heroes' families need help, they turn to Fisher House. We learned about the Fisher House through the doctor, and we were so grateful because who has three weeks to be able to come and stay at a hotel? Fisher House is a safe, free place to stay for families of wounded warriors and veterans receiving treatment at VA and military medical centers. Fisher House is not only a home away from home, it was like family away from family. Thank you, Fisher House. Thank you, Fisher House. Helping military and veterans' families. Fisher House at fisherhouse.org. Sometimes having family close by is a hero's best medicine. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. 
Do you know what contributes to over 50% of all personal bankruptcies? It's medical debt, which is carried by millions of Americans. In fact, over 40% of people diagnosed with cancer will deplete their assets in just two years. But an organization has come along to address this problem in a unique and creative way. It's RIP Medical Debt, and it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their co-founder, Craig Antico. Good evening, Craig, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver, for having me. You know, the studios of this radio station, where we're at at the moment, are only about 100 yards away from Zuccotti Park, the site of Occupy Wall Street, and the founding story of RIP Medical Debt began there. Tell us how it all got started. Well, Jerry Ashton, our co-founder, along with me, um, went down to Zuccotti Park when it first started the Occupy Wall Street movement. Now, Jerry is a Navy journalist going way back. So he was really uh, curious. He said, is this for real? <laughs> so we went down there. He brought, his, he brought his pad. He brought his video. Yeah. He brought his camera. His tools. Uh, his tools <laughs> of the trade. And he ended up interviewing people. He ended up becoming a Huffington Post uh, columnist just to chronicle Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. for the next two to three years. Well, as he's there, the people are saying, why is a collector in our midst? What do you mean a collector? Because he is a collector from way back. A, a, a collection agency collection. Oh, a debt man, collector. A debt collector. Mm-hmm. And he had been doing that since, God, since the 70s. He's one of the best collectors I've ever seen because <laughs> I, I come from the collection industry as well. Okay. I ran collection agencies. Mm-hmm. Now, he's there. Hey, wait, wait. I'm not, I'm not here to enforce the 1% <laughs> here, you know. Um, and they, they started to confide in him. They'd ask him about their student loan debt, about their medical debt. What can I do? Because a lot of people are just like, I'm not even going to open up the mail. I'm not even going to accept the phone call. So they were really concerned about that. Well, they ended up having an idea in order to bring awareness to this medical debt problem and just debt in general. Mm -hmm. They figured what they would do is start to buy medical debt themselves. So they asked Jerry, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Okay. In his infinite wisdom, he said, I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it ended up he, he just, as a volunteer, just told them what they should do. They went on to, to actually abolish debt, and they were our inspiration for RIP Medical Debt. Craig, what's it like to be somebody who is hounding people for money or else to now being in a situation where you're giving them a new lease on life? You know, it's, it's miraculous because I've been in this business for over 30 years, and I'm talking about the collection business, mm-hmm. debt collecting. Half of all debt is medical. 58% of all the bad marks on a credit report are medical mm-hmm. debt. So we know medical debt, and it's one of the hardest, hardest types of accounts to collect. And I never liked doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I uh, I started in a family business, and I started to make a lot of money, and said, "Well, what am I going to do now? I, I can't leave." And I stayed. Mm-hmm. I stayed for all those years, for seventeen years, and then uh, and then came Jerry Ashton, yeah, saying, "Hey, look at this! Look what's happening here! This nonprofit has abolished over forty million dollars of debt." I said, "What?" And they, um, we looked at it and we said, well, I think we're pretty qualified to do that. Yeah. And they had stopped what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So we decided on January 1st of 2014, we're going to start doing this. Maybe, maybe we could raise the same amount of money that they raised. Nope. The hardest thing we ever did. We knew how to collect. We knew how to buy the debt. We did not know how to raise money. A fundraiser. Fundraising oh, is not like business. <laughs> yeah. It is a different animal. Mm-hmm. And it took us many years to actually get into the, the actual way to raise money. Mm-hmm. Took- you know, it's funny about Occupy Wall Street. I was talking to somebody on the show about this the other day. And Occupy Wall Street was a big failure. Uh, at the end of it, people said they didn't know what they wanted. And the whole thing kind of just withered away. But if you now look back... And you look at the 1%, you look at inequality, you look at debt, 
they really were groundbreaking in what they did. And it just is, you know, a, a cautionary word that you can't judge things too quickly. You have to look over a period of time to see the influence that Occupy Wall Street actually had on our society. I think so, too, because if you look at the top issues that were addressed by the U.N., for example, mm-hmm. inequality was not at the top no, none of these just five were. years ago. Yeah. And now it's one of the top things that we're looking for. And what we care about is, is righting a wrong. Now, a lot of people that have debt, medical debt, they qualified for charity care. Yeah. Now, they, they might not have accepted it. Mm-hmm. See, that's the interesting part. It's not all an indictment of the hospitals. A lot of people will say, and we've worked with AARP on some groundbreaking work in this area. They said to us, when they, we, they interviewed over 200 people that were 50 and older, and they asked them, you, you um, qualify for charity care. Will you take it? No, no, that's not for me. Not that's for, for me. somebody that really needs it. Yeah, like, yeah. Wait a second. They need it more than anybody <laughs> because they don't have the income that they used to have. Mm-hmm. 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds that aren't working are, are basically on a fixed income. That's right. All of a sudden, you get a five ten thousand $10,000 bill. You are you are down for the count. Mm-hmm. It's really a bad situation. How many people, Craig, in this country have medical debt, and how much is the medical debt in total? Well, we estimate that almost fifty percent of Americans have medical debt. Wow, fifty percent—that's incredible. Because what happens is hospitals alone produce they produce debt at a prodigious rate. I mean, the bills just keep coming. <laughs> There's about a trillion dollars of bills that occur. Now, it used to be in the recent past, maybe near 2000-ish, that about 10% of the cash that came into a hospital came from the people. That's their portion. Mm -hmm. Now patients are paying 30% of that amount that the hospitals get a year. So more and more people can't pay that responsibility, that piece. So we've got probably... um, probably around 100 million people, 150 million people that have medical debt right now. What age or age group has the most medical debt? You wouldn't believe this. 26 and 27-year-olds. <laughs> right after they get off their parents' insurance? As <laughs> soon as they get off their parents' insurance. But the crazy thing is, it's that their parents might not have paid their insur- the, the bills since they were 18. Mm-hmm. And they've been responsible since they were 18 years old. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't know that they even had debt. What is the life cycle of a medical bill? For at least it gets to you guys. Sure. First, a patient comes to the, to the hospital. Let's just say we're talking about hospital debt here. Because that's most of the debt that mm-hmm. we can buy. Now, a patient comes to the hospital. They get registered. At that moment... They should be qualified for charity care. Can they afford to pay this bill? But a lot of times, since, especially since the ACA, Obama, Obamacare, mm-hmm. where people now have insurance, they're not being checked to see if they qualify for charity care. Usually you say, do you have insurance or not? Well, all of a sudden, a tremendous amount of people, maybe 20 million people, got insurance. But what the hospitals really aren't paying attention to is that 20 million people might have gotten insurance, but they got high deductible plans. Mm-hmm. So now their their deductible is $2,500, $5,000, because a lot of times people are looking for the lowest cost monthly. That means you're paying a big deductible. So they can't even pay dollar one. And you, uh, I don't know if you've seen in the Atlantic, um, they did in our article on, if someone had a surprise charge, yeah. could they pay it? Yeah, I think $400. $400 and 50%, almost 50% of people could not come up with $400. They'd either have to sell an asset or incur debt. Yeah. Now, people can get charity care, and most of the time, a bill will not even be created. So that's the interesting part. If you qualify for charity care, you have to be a consumer that knows your rights. So when you go to the hospital, the first thing you do is, am I making two times the federal poverty level? or less, because that's the cutoff most of the time. Mm -hmm. And a third of our population is two times the poverty level below. So the the anatomy of a bill is, should there even be one Mm -hmm. or not? 
and that's what we call charity care. And you can go on a website for every hospital in the country and see what their financial assistance policy is, which is charity care, and you apply for it. Unfortunately, it's an opt-in. If it was an opt-out... It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. If we had an opt-out policy, which is really essentially what RIP Medical Debt is, it's an opt-out policy, because we find the people that qualify for charity care almost, and then we buy that debt and abolish it. People don't know that it's happening. They just get a yellow envelope that says your debt has been forgiven, wiped out completely, taken off your credit report. That's sweet. An, a no-strings-attached gift. Well, let's get to uh, the meat of all this. How do you go about uh, relieving this debt for all these people? What's all, the process? All we have to do, <laughs> all we have to do. All we have to yeah. <laughs> Easy to say. Uh, we're about to, we just received donations of about $850,000 in the last couple of months mm-hmm. that we are now going to go and buy debt in the areas that those donors care about. That could be they might care about demographics. Are they women? Are they children? Are they 27-year-olds? Are they veterans? Are they veterans? Um, or geographically, are they in Appalachia? Mm-hmm. That's where I care about. Or are they in New England? Or are they in New York City? Things like that. We, that's what people care about. Well, a lot people of have that everywhere, so you follow where the donor's intent is in terms of where they want to relieve The it. donor cares about cancer. We'll find cancer debt. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to find $100 million of debt, and with that $800,000, we're going to buy it. Now, what we have to do is we have to qualify it, make sure that it meets the three requirements that we have. And those are, and similar to charity care, are the people making two times the poverty level or less? Mm-hmm. That's the first criteria. Second criteria, are they spending 5% or more of their gross income on medical expenses or this debt in particular? So if a person has $5,001 in debt that we're abolishing, they make $100,000, they will get their debt abolished. The other thing is a lot of people, like you said in the opening, are usurping all of their life savings. Yep, that's what they're doing. The toxicity of medical debt, especially in cancer, people are spending 10, 20, 30 percent of their gross income. They've got to start using their savings or debt, you know, credit. And if a person is insolvent, which is what that means, Mm -hmm. their their assets no longer meet their requirements of their their debt, we abolish debt for them too. What's the ratio of between the amount of money that you would put up and the amount of debt you're able to forgive. I mean, I'm sure there differs in depending where you're at, but let's say if you had $100,000, by and large, how much debt could that relieve? That could relieve $10 million. Wow. And sometimes a little more. If mm-hmm. our costs are lower, let's say the accounts are very large and I don't have have to use a lot of money to find the data on them. I don't have to send out as many letters. Then the costs are a little lower, and I might be able to abolish a, 110 times the amount that we're given. You just usually just add two zeros to the amount that you want to give. Mm-hmm. You want to give 10000 add two zeros, that's a million dollars. So just add a couple of zeros on there and maybe a little more, and you've got how much debt we can abolish. So what's the incentive for these entities that are owed this money? Have they just pretty much thrown up their arms and say this is better than nothing? Or how, what, what's their reason for doing well, this? Well, what's interesting is a lot of the people in these hospitals know that a tremendous percentage, maybe 30 to 40 percent, cannot pay and never will be able to pay this debt. So should we be pursuing them? Should we be suing them? Mm-hmm. Or should we just say, hey, you know, I'm going to sell it to RIP Medical Debt and make at least something. Because if you think about it, the bad debt piece of a hospital is between 5 and 10%. So for the lion's share, they're collecting the money. Mm-hmm. Now it's a matter of what percentage can I collect of that debt that, I'm, that I have left. It's an arduous task to collect it, believe me. A collection agency that gets $100 million in debt might collect a million, two mm-hmm. million, three million. Mm-hmm. That's a very small amount. What we tell the debt buyers, there's people that, companies that actually buy the debt from hospitals. About 30% of the hospitals sell their debt. More of them are going to sell to us because we're not going to collect on it. But let's just say the secondary market for debt. There are, there's billions and billions of dollars. We have a, 
We have $5 billion that we can select from. That's why when a company comes in or a person comes in, and 70% of our donors are people, Mm -hmm. individuals, they come in and say, I want to abolish debt for my community. And we'll look at their county or group of counties. And we'll then be able to go through that $5 billion of debt that we have as a potential inventory and we'll we'll make a bid to the debt owner. Mm -hmm. This is a debt buyer and they'll sell it to us. Because, listen to this, it might take a debt buyer five to ten years to make the required amount of money that they need to do this business in itself. Mm -hmm. Some of these debt buyers, they might have 30% of their income coming from 10-year-old accounts Mm -hmm. and, and older. So they're they're working these accounts for a long time. Debt never dies. Yeah, right. Okay, it never dies. So you guys come along. <laughs> we come along, and what we're <laughs> and telling you kill it. You know, what we're telling these debt buyers and even hospitals, we're saying, instead of waiting seven, seven, ten years to get your money, I'll pay you right now yeah. for all that stream of money that you're going to make over the next dollar. But the crazy thing is, they might only collect three percent. But they have to talk to or send letters to the 90, 97% of oh, the people. Right. So we're trying to remove, we are removing the hardship of collections for the people that can't pay and never will pay. Even though 3, 4, 5% will pay, why are we hitting all those 95% of the people that can't? Well, so that's how we're doing it. Yeah, for the, for the hospital or the medical entity, it's a big carrying cost for them to just uh, service this and continue this debt. And it's funny, I guess they would never agree to this kind of arrangement for an individual. No, it think of it. It has to be bundled. Think of it this way. If I went to a hospital and said, hey, I've got Mary Jane here from Podunk, Iowa. She owes 1000 bucks. I'm a charity. I want to pay 10 bucks, mm. which is 1%. Like, what, are you kidding me? Crazy. <laughs> Even if it was 100000 and yeah. I said, I want to pay 1000 mm-hmm. no way. But I add... 10,000 accounts together and that 100 million becomes a million dollars, that might be 20% of their whole net profit for a quarter. Yeah, yeah. It makes a difference when you add numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, I watched last week tonight a show on HBO, which is hosted by comedian John Oliver. It's a great show. It airs Sunday evening at 10 p.m. And he helped to catapult this effort into a completely different orbit. Tell us how he did that. Well, he did it by making fun of the whole industry that I come from. Okay, he made a he made a a real horrible portrayal of the collection industry, of the debt buying industry, and probably not that hard to do. Well, you know, it's it's funny. It only takes a couple of bad apples to make a whole industry look bad. Sure. I mean, if you think about it, hospitals have the smallest amount of collectors that any industry has. That's a trillion dollar industry. 8,000 accounts per collector. Mm. So you have to use collection agencies mm-hmm. or even sell the debt. Now, he made fun of the of the industry. And by the way, the industry thought that I was part of the whole deal. They wouldn't even talk with me. These are people <laughs> I've known for 30 years because how else would we be able to buy the debt mm-hmm. if they didn't trust the charity? Mm-hmm. They trust the charity that we're going to buy the debt that really qualifies for charity care. John Oliver, and we're going to build a statue for this guy. I don't blame you. Because we got so many inquiries about our help because he donated $15 million of medical debt to RIP Medical Debt because he couldn't do it himself. He Mm. was trying to do it. You know he's even started churches. I know. he's He's done some incredible things to bring to light you know, how problems. easy it is to get something like yeah, this started. How easy, yeah. It's like I started this and any idiot can do it. And yeah. he's like, and I'm an idiot. Did you prove it? I just started one, I just right. started one. So he um, he didn't realize that he had to be a charity to do this. And you know, he's doing a comedy show. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't do it. Because his goal is to sh- to be a comedy show. Yeah. Our goal is to help eliminate medical debt. So he's lucky he even found us mm-hmm. to do this. Otherwise, he would have invested $150,000 and never been able to do a thing. From within two weeks of him being introduced to us, we were able to put this on the, on the, on the show. Yeah. Otherwise, they would have never been able to mm-hmm. do it. But if it wasn't for him, we might not even be in existence because he brought and, – and so far, his show – Last week from John Oliver. Last week tonight with John Oliver. 
That show, that segment on debt buying has been seen by over 13 million people. And it continues to bring people to us. Mm. I mean, we've had churches come to us. We've had NBC came to us and did a whole- I saw the piece. You know, $150 million of debt is abolished now because of them. By the way, how much debt have you been able to abolish? We have abolished over $800 million in medical debt. With this next purchase next week- we will break the $900 million mark, mm-hmm. and within the next month or two, we will break the billion-dollar mark. Which you were going to do in 2020, but it looks like we're going to beat that target. We're going to beat that target. Mm-hmm. Who funds you? You said 70% from individuals, but yeah, how do you get your money? You're a nonprofit. 70% of our money comes from individuals, not dissimilar to the the way all of charity is in this country. We've, I think there's $420 billion is given to charities in this country, and about 70% of it gets, comes mm-hmm. from individuals. But what we're noticing is more churches are coming to us than ever before. I think we have 60 churches. One just just gave $430,000, which mm. is a phenomenal amount. I mean, it's going to abolish over $50 million of debt yeah. for a region of, mm-hmm. a, of this church. Now, we don't, we're not um, any denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not supporting churches per se. Right. But I think churches realize that hey, we care about our we care about people first. We care about our community of of givers and community of of, of followers. And they feel it's their mission. Yeah, and I think like all donors, they care about leverage. And they can leverage their money here uh at, at an astronomical rate. Yeah, you um you almost can feel like you're a billionaire giving money. <laughs> you give $100,000 and it's going to abolish $10 million. It's like, holy cow. It's yeah. like I feel like I am like really a philanthropist now. Uh, like, but you know what? People what should realize. Mark Anthony or something like that? A millionaire, <laughs> that old show, remember? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It's funny. You, you can act like a billionaire, but you don't have to give a billion. Yeah, you know? that's right. We'll have a we'll have the hundred thousand dollar pledge instead of the billion dollar <laughs> pledge. Come on! And my I've always envisioned my whole life. I can't wait for the day that I can give a million dollars. I mean, that's that was one of my goals is yeah. to give away a million dollars. Haven't achieved it yet, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to make a fortune being in a nonprofit. But that was always my goal. Now people can do it with ten thousand dollars. Give a, a, a million dollars away. You know, I know you had been working with four universities who were studying the impact of what it was like for a person or a family to have this debt relieved. Where do we stand with that? You know, we've um, we've had a little bit of a delay. Mm, okay. but we've been doing it for over a year now. Mm-hmm. And a big part of, uh, of the work is how does the access to credit change? How, do, how, do, how does the cost of credit change when we abolish debt for people? And, of course, credit scores are very important to that. And we use TransUnion. TransUnion is an incredible strategic partner of ours because they want to use information for good and not yeah. be seen as, as only a predatory information giver. We're, we call ourselves a predatory giver. And um, it turns out that there's been a problem with some of the reporting mm. recently with some of the debt that we bought. So there's a little bit of a delay. Not okay. something your your people need to know much about, and yeah. I, I get into too much detail sometimes. But within the next six months, we are going to be doing some reporting on what's what's yeah, happening. It would be very interesting to see. Well, let me close with this then. Well, and, let me let me tell sure. one more thing. Um, the researchers, MIT, University of Chicago, UC Berkeley, and UCLA, mm-hmm. have recently got an over a million dollar grant to not only study the impact from an economic standpoint, but the impact from an emotional and mental perspective. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be able to do surveys to hundreds of thousands of people and find out how this is really affecting them and how does abolishing debt actually affect them because we get stories all the time about people, how this made a difference to them. I mean, you would think that it would be on the people that get abolished $50,000, $100,000 because the biggest debt we've abolished is over $250,000, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's the person that gets the $1,000 debt abolished that they couldn't even imagine how they were going to get out of it. Or it's the $10,000 abolishment where they've got, they're inundated with cancer debt, and this is one more thing they don't have to think about. 
because they can't even they're they're telling me when they get these letters they're like renewed hope and humanity <laughs> like yeah. there's someone out there that actually cares because they've got twenty thirty a hundred thousand dollars of debt, and now I can see the light at the end of the tunnel we've yeah. gotten many for cancer I, I i can I can imagine you know it's somewhat uh, analogous to having to pay bail and if you're a, a poor guy and the bail is a thousand dollars I had a guy on the show who said well you know that might as well have been a million dollars it's the same amount of money I have no hope of getting it so we send, tend to look at it from a relative point of view of how much but the paralysis that debt can set in it's all having to do with the individual and their circumstances and what they can do very good point I mean I'm, I'm amazed that people that have a very low income give to us yeah I mean, the percentage of their income, it must be a significant amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I and then the whole country, we average about one and a half to two percent of our of our income. Some of these people are spending ten percent of their income on charity. They're, yeah. they're just amazing people. And those are the ones, unfortunately, that are getting hurt mm-hmm. by our medical debt. I mean, you won't believe this. Fifty five million dollars is given to friends and family each year for medical debt. That's Wow. Now that is an unknown statistic yeah. to most people. And that's saying, hey, my son needs it, my daughter needs mm-hmm. it, my neighbor needs it. They're just giving the money or lending it knowing that they're not going to get it back. And I just heard a statistic that $88 billion. Did I say million before? It's $55 billion. I think it, yeah. I'm sorry. It's mm-hmm. $55 billion is lent to friends and family for medical debt and expenses. And $88 billion is, is borrowed to pay for this. This is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Well, let us close with an individual story in terms of somebody that RIP Medical Debt has been able to help and what it has meant to them. I'm going to go back to one of the first people that got their debt abolished. This person showed us and we interviewed her on TV. She had about 30 different bills from hospitals throughout New York City. The bill that we forgave, she pulled it out of her, her pile. It was only $990. Mm-hmm. And she said, when I got the call about this, I was like, what? You're, you're, you're calling to tell me that you've forgiven my medical debt? <laughs> She's like, I get calls all the time for collecting on the Not medical like debt. I, I, I've never heard anything like this. And she said, my parents, and she lived with her parents because she was 26 years old, mm-hmm. very similar to the number one yep. person in, the, in, the, in debt with medical debt. And she said, my family had to move to a smaller house. They had to give me money to help pay off my debt. And you don't know how important this was to me to have this happen. I mean, it's, it was just, I mean, a thousand bucks, but it, it made a big difference. So th- those are the kind of stories that we get. A very sweet way in which to end. Well, Craig Antico, the co-founder of RIP Medical Debt, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people learn more about what you do or maybe provide you some funding so you can go out there and relieve even more debt? We look forward to hearing from you, but go to www.ripmedicaldebt.org and you'll find us there. Very good. Well, thanks, Craig. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Denver. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. I used to have more hair. I used to have more color. And I used to have cancer. I beat it. I did. Not alone. I used to have no idea what the American Cancer Society did. Research? Yeah. But also... Free rides to chemo and free lodging near hospitals. I used to maybe give a little. Then I got so much back. I used to have cancer. Please give at cancer.org. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Cancer will soon be the number one killer in America, and playing it safe when it comes to funding research is not going to change that. 
Rather, we need to fund the brave, the bold, and the best. And that is what the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation has been doing since 1946. And here to tell us about their strategy and impact is Dr. Young Lee, the president and CEO of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. Good evening, Young, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, there may be some listeners who might not know who Damon Runyon was and how the foundation got started. So tell us the founding story. Damon Runyon was a writer, a journalist, and uh, his stories are the basis of Guys and Dolls. And so that's probably where most people today might be familiar with Damon Runyon, because I think pretty much every high school across America continues to do a production of Guys and Dolls at some point Yeah, that's a pretty good touchstone. (laughs) It is, absolutely. But Damon Runyon um, wrote these iconic stories, um, really focused on capturing these really fascinating characters, um, primarily in New York. There were gamblers. There were um, all sorts of really fascinating characters, um, and they're really a fun read. But the story of Damon Runyon um, and how it connects to the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation is that Damon Runyon passed away of throat cancer Mm -hmm. in the 1940s. His best friend was Walter Winchell, a very famous radio personality at the time. Um, and so here we are. Always look up to Walter Winchell. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so here we are back to our connection to radio. And Damon Runyon and Walter Winchell, again, were very, very good friends. And when Walter Winchell found out the news about his very good friend Damon Runyon passing away of cancer, he got on the radio And he put out a call to the men and women of America to give their spare change to support cancer research. So Walter Winchell was really a visionary in that sense, that he recognized that by supporting cancer research, we could really make a difference and make progress against this deadly disease. He also was a visionary in the sense that he had an understanding that building this core of young scientists, researchers who would focus their efforts on trying to make breakthroughs against cancer was where we should focus. And so since the 1940s, this is what our foundation's mission has been. Fantastic. Over 70 years of doing that. Young, give us a snapshot of where we stand in America today as it relates to to this deadly disease. So there's been an incredible amount of progress that's been made against cancer. There are new treatments, and there's a lot of optimism in the field. Unfortunately, we're still at a, at a place where one in, every, one in two men and one in three women over the course of their lifetimes will receive a diagnosis of cancer. So it's incredibly important that we make progress in new treatments, better treatments for cancer, because it is a disease that is likely to affect many people in the U.S. and across the world. World. What we know is that, you know, in part, this is a reflection of the fact that people are living much longer, and because they are living much longer, the likelihood that they might receive a diagnosis of cancer at some point has increased. But that being said, we now this year um, are at a point where we have over 15 million cancer survivors. So that, I think, is a very positive um, outcome that we have more and more people that are not receiving a It's not a death sentence Mm -hmm. when they do receive that diagnosis of cancer. But there's hope and there are new treatments. And our, our, our goal really is to get to a point where cancer becomes a treatable disease as opposed to a death sentence. Yeah, we've made some incredible progress over that in the last 20, 30 years. I used to lead a cancer organization back in the 80s, yes. and it's been amazing the breakthroughs we had, not in all cancers, but in so many different cancers. What have been some of the cancer breakthroughs that the Damon Runyon researchers have had a hand in? So as you mentioned, the Damon Runyon Foundation's been around since the 1940s, and so we've had an amazing track record of success over these uh, over seven, 70 years. Um, our scientists have been behind uh, all of the major discoveries in cancer research, and in our early days, we one of our scientists established the link between smoking and lung cancer. Hmm. So these were, you know, we take that for, for, we take advantage of the fact that, you know, we have this understanding, but scientists had to, you know, really establish those links and determine what might be causing cancer. And And Damon Runyon was a big smoker himself, wasn't he? He was. So Damon Runyon smoked 
every day, <laughs> and that was the reason that he ended up dying of throat cancer. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, so our scientists have really been at the heart of, of many different discoveries, and so including other things like the first bone marrow transplant um, to cure cancer patients, um, the first use of chemotherapy and radiation to treat cancers. Um, in the more, more recent time periods, we've had very significant uh, discoveries that have been critical to the success of immunotherapy. Um, this is something that I think there's incredible excitement about in the field. Tell us a little bit more about that. What sure. is immunotherapy? So immunotherapy is, in essence, taking advantage of harnessing our own immune system to be able to recognize, target, and attack the, attack the cancer in our own bodies. So that's the thing that's really fascinating about cancer is that it's a disease that forms in our bodies, but it evades and hides from the immune system. Mm. So you think about getting a virus, a cold or a flu, our body is able to fight it and to attack that virus and get rid of it and clear it from the body. Not with cancer. Cancer is wily and yeah. sneaky <laughs> and it hides, <laughs> right? It really disguise itself. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, what scientists have learned is that by training the immune system to be able to now reactivate, recognize the cancer, and attack it is an incredibly powerful way of um, being able to treat certain types of cancer, and it's been incredibly successful. What we know is that in combination with other types of therapies, immunotherapy, I think, is really where a lot of the physicians are seeing the future of cancer treatment. That is fascinating. You said a moment ago it, it um, has been able to attack a lot of kinds of cancer. Which mm -hmm. ones in particular? The first success of immunotherapy was observed um, in melanoma. Mm -hmm. Melanoma, when it spreads, is an incredibly deadly disease. And over the last about 30 years, there really have been no new advances for treatment of advanced metastatic melanoma. So there are treatments now that have been approved that have shown incredible success in the clinic where... These drugs, these immunotherapy drugs that reactivate the immune system in melanoma patients have been able to put a certain number of these patients into complete remission. So it's essentially a cure. The place where we hope to improve is that not all patients are going to respond to these therapy therapies. And so our hope is to continue to support research that will enable improvement of immunotherapy so that it applies to more patients, mm -hmm. more patients respond, but then also that we can have it expand out to other cancer types. Mm -hmm. How far along are we with um, personalized medicine or precision medicine? So that's, I think, an incredibly exciting field. So think about um, 30 years ago when we had chemotherapy. Chemotherapy was um, used really as one of the primary treatments against cancer. And it kills not only the cancer cells, but all of the other healthy cells, many other healthy cells in the body as well. And so you have incredible, um, incredibly toxic side effects that make it a very difficult treatment. Um, so in, in the process of killing the cancer cells, you're causing a lot of other mm -hmm. damage to the body. So with the advent of personalized or, or precision medicine, we're now at a point where we have a much better understanding of the genetic changes that have taken place in the cancer cells so that rather than using a blanket uh, treatment that's going to kill not only the cancer cells but other cells as well, we have targeted treatments that will very specifically target and attack and kill the cancer cells with, while sparing the healthy cells in the body. So. Uh, the hope, again, is to get to a point where for each cancer patient, regardless of what type of cancer they have, they can go in, they can have a genetic profiling done um, of their cancers, and the doctors will have a very clear understanding of which therapies um, in which combination of therapies potentially can be used to treat each patient so that they can have the best chance of um, a healthy future without 
um, all of the toxic side effects of the, the therapies. Oh, that is great. Are we making any progress with uh, vaccines? I think we have one for cervical, but I mean, are we making any more progress in that area? We are, and I would love to talk a little bit about the cervical cancer. Oh, please do. <laughs> so one of our scientists and one of the Damon Runyon scientists actually established uh, the link between um, the human papillomavirus mm-hmm. and cervical cancer, but not only cervical cancer, but also head and neck cancers. So what we found is that this particular virus, um, HPV, is actually responsible for causing, again, not only cervical vir- cancer, but also other other cancers as well. So we're very excited about the fact that there is now a vaccine available and there are recommendations out now to vaccinate all adolescent children, um, both girls and boys, uh, against HPV. And this is an opportunity to eradicate a completely, a completely huge class of cancers. And so we're very excited about the fact that now we are poised to, in this next generation, eradicate cervical cancers, certain head and neck cancers as well. Um, um, With respect to other cancer vaccines, there are some vaccines that are different from the traditional sense of a vaccine that will completely eliminate um, a certain disease type. So there are now cancer vaccines that are being developed in a very specific and precise way, again, going back to this concept of personalized medicine, where um, it's in, we are developing vaccines for cancer patients that will essentially vaccinate them from any future development or recurrence of a cancer. And so these vaccines, there are certain ones that are being created for cancer patients, um, and once they are treated, these vaccines will prime, again, their immune system to train it so that it will fight the cancer if the cancer recurs in their body and prevents it from spreading. A great overview, Young. Well, let's get into a little bit about what you do, and you'll know a lot about this because you were one of those uh, scientists who was chosen as well. How does Damon Runyon go about selecting who will be funded? So I think that at the heart of our strategy and our success as an organization has been this process of how to select the best young talent. So our goal is to try to identify people at a very early and critical point in their careers um, to identify the people who can uh, take risks, be bold, and make the breakthroughs in cancer. So our goal is to enable them, at, again, at these early points in their career, to be able to have the independence and the freedom to pursue important and big scientific ideas. We have an amazing group of scientists that work with us, um, leaders of cancer centers and leaders of their fields across the country who comprise our scientific committees. Mm -hmm. They work with us as our partners to select the next generation of leaders. And what we try to do is to use these very esteemed scientific committees um, and create ones that create committees that are made up of people who are themselves innovators and uh, have done breakthrough science because they are the ones that can really spot the next generation of leaders. And so can you. You've been uh, described as a great judge of scientific talent. Is there anything you look for that perhaps somebody such as myself would not be looking for? <laughs> I think that uh, one of the things that we're always looking for is that aspect of risk-taking uh. and being bold, because I think that's really, really important, especially in science. There are going to be particular studies that will um, be a bit more incremental and safe, but where we think uh, our strategy really has has been successful is by spotting the people that are unafraid to take these risks, who are fearless, um, and who are willing to pursue those kind of crazy ideas, Mm -hmm. because sometimes those are the ones that really are going to make a difference. What are some of the challenges um, that female scientists encounter? 
I think that things are improving quite a bit for women scientists. Um, we, as an organization, have really made an effort to support all of our scientists as well as possible. And so we provide them not only with grant money, but we also provide them with a lot of other support. And so one of the things that we do is that we recognize that many of the scientists that we're funding at these early points in their careers are starting a family. Um, mm-hmm. They're trying to balance their lab commitments and their career with trying to, you know, also be able to raise children, um, to have a personal life. And so we support that. So there's a couple of different ways that we've done this. We actually um, provide all of our fellows, our postdoctoral fellows with a child care allowance that helps them to pay for um, those expenses. Oh, that I love that. It's incredibly important and they really value that. When we have our scientific meetings, our retreats, um, we allow our nursing mothers to bring their babies with them so that they can not only come and be a part of our scientific community, but they can also care for their children. Um, there are other ways that we try to support you know, our women scientists. We are always, I think, trying to pay attention to having as much balance within our portfolio of of scientists as much, you know, again, as much as possible. We seek to fund the best scientists Mm -hmm. always, but we do make sure that we have a good balance of men and women. We're also very interested in being able to support diversity and inclusion um, amongst scientists because this is something that's incredibly important. Um, And we know that certainly um, for cancer, there are different types of cancers that are going to affect women mm-hmm. and men differently. And so we encourage our scientists also to be thinking about those particular issues when they are doing their actual research. And I think another thing you do, too, is to promote STEM education and encourage girls. What are you doing in that regard? So I think that, you know, I personally as well as professionally feel a responsibility to um, try to be a role model for for younger scientists. Um, we have really focused on trying to give our scientists an opportunity to speak um, more to broader audiences um, about the science that they do and the importance of the research that they're conducting and the potential impact that it can have. And so we have uh, a number of different partners that we work with, um, both on the corporate and um, foundation side, and so we try to partner with them in ways so that we can better communicate the work that we're doing and really hopefully get the next generation mm-hmm. of, of kids excited about science because we want them to also think about this as not only an exciting um, potential career path, but something that they could really you know, affect, change the world. How did you first get excited by science? So um, my path to science really started quite early. Um, I was born and raised in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. um, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I grew up really, you know, spending a lot of time outdoors. And so I always loved um, nature. I would collect all sorts of insects and animals outside and bring them home, (laughs) much to my mother's dismay. But not your dad's. (laughs) No, my dad loved it. So (laughs) my dad, um, actually, my, my original interest in science came from my my dad because mm-hmm. uh, he was a doctor and anesthesiologist but his uh, he always had a real love of research and he did research um, as a as a young man in Indonesia which is where my parents are from mm-hmm. and so he would tell me these amazing stories about having done research when he was still uh, training in Indonesia and so I always had a real fascination with the idea of pursuing a career in research and continued along that path. Yes you have. Um, you are the first scientist and the first alumna to be the CEO of Damon Runyon. How do you think that's going to impact your leadership? Well, I have an incredibly deep connection with Damon Runyon. Mm -hmm. Um, I was funded as a Damon Runyon Fellow um, when I was a postdoctoral fellow um, back in uh, around 2000. And it's been an incredible opportunity to be a part of this esteemed scientific community. Um, The connections that I've made to other scientists through Damon Runyon have just been extraordinary. And to now be in a position to be leading the organization is an absolute privilege and honor. 
I think that as a scientist, I can bring some new perspective and um, insight to what it means to be able to uh, enable scientists to be in a position to be successful. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of all we do is the scientists, um, but it always has been. And I'm just excited about being able to work with our scientific leadership as well as the rest of our board of directors and the scientific community as a whole to try to identify areas where we as an organization can really make a difference. How can we identify places where there's not enough funding or mm -hmm. can we develop certain ways of supporting our scientists that will really give them the best opportunity to be successful. Let's speak a little bit about your board of directors. You're a relatively new CEO, and there's probably no more important relationship in a nonprofit organization between the CEO and the board chair. What do you need to do to get that off to a good start, and what advice would you have for others? So I think that I have been incredibly fortunate because I have had a long relationship with our board of directors. Mm -hmm. Having been at the foundation um, in the role of leading the scientific programs for the past 10 years, I'm now, I've now stepped into this role as president and CEO, but I already have a very rich history um, of relationships with our board of directors. Part of what's unique about the board at Damon Runyon is the fact that one-third of the members are actually scientists themselves. So that's been incredibly helpful for us. And I think that each of our board members is able to lend specific expertise to making sure that we have the absolute best strategy in place for our organization, um, both from the scientific side as well as financially and just being very well strategically positioned. Um, the chair of our board is um, a gentleman named Alan Leventhal, who has been absolutely phenomenal. And he puts it best, I think, when he talks about our board as being very unique in the sense that they're incredibly committed and dedicated to our work. They're very engaged, and they've been, been behind me 100%. That's great. What's your business model? How do you generate the, the income you need to support the operation and the scientists, and what's that mix look like? So the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation is a public charity. Mm -hmm. We fundraise from the uh, men and women of America, yeah. as Walter Winchell put it back <laughs> in 1946. Um, we've been incredibly fortunate to have a number of longstanding donors who continue to support the work that we do. Part of what's, I think, really special and puts us apart um, from some other organizations out there is that 100% of all donations go to cancer research. That's great. So we are thrilled to be able to promise each and every one of our donors that every penny of their donation goes directly to cancer research. Part of how we do that is the fact that we do have an endowment mm -hmm. that enables us to cover our administrative costs that way. And then we also have a tie back to our original history, which is a Broadway ticket service. Tell us about that. <laughs> so we have relationships with a number of the theaters on Broadway. And so through those relationships, we have this fantastic Broadway ticket service. Um, when customers come to us, we can provide them with premium level VIP seats um, to all of the greatest shows that are out there. And half of the price that they pay is going, it goes directly to uh, support Damon Runyon. So it's a really fantastic way to not only support cancer research, but to see great Broadway shows from the best seats in the house. Well, I know where I'm getting my next set of Broadway tickets, that's for sure. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Let me close with this, Young. What is the funding picture like for a young scientist today, and how challenging is it for many of them to stay in the field and pursue a career in research? So I'm glad you asked that question. I think that there is not a lot of information out there for the general public about how expensive it is to do research. When we, when we speak to our scientists who are running their own labs at academic institutions uh, across the country, in many cases, the cost of running that lab and just being able to maintain operations and staff is about a million dollars a year. It's incredibly expensive. So where does mm. that money come from? 
Most of our scientists are very busy writing grants. Um, some of it, some of the work is, you know, very significantly funded through the federal government, through the National Institutes of Health, but that's not enough to cover all of the costs. And what we can do um, through Damon Runyon is to help alleviate some of that stress of having to write grants um, every single year by providing them with multi-year grants. Mm, that's great. And part of what we do also is that our grants do not cover overhead expenses. Mm -hmm. And so those overhead expenses are covered by their institutions. And uh, we want to, them to have, again, that freedom to be able to think about the science, to focus on the research, as opposed to having to write those grants on a regular basis. Well, Dr. Young Lee, the president and CEO of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people learn more about what you do and that uh, Broadway ticket program of yours? So the best place to learn about us is on our website, www.damonrunyon.org, mm -hmm. damonrunyon.org. Well, thanks, Young. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.